You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning, Village. I'll be reading Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Some of you who are close to me know that I have a horrible memory. I forget things very easily. I don't remember a whole lot from my childhood. And it's not just because bad things happen. It's just I have a horrible memory. Um, One of my earliest memories, however, is this incident that happened in third grade. I don't remember much about it. I don't remember what happened before. I don't remember what happened afterwards. I I just remember I was a kid in the class. And I remember my teacher's name, but I don't even remember what she looks like. Uh, but uh, something, she asked a question, I believe, and then I answered this question. I don't remember what the question was. I don't remember what the answer was. But I do remember she said, Larry, that's called showing off. And, um, and that's all I remember. That's all I remember from that whole year, is that, that line. Uh, Larry, that's called showing off. And, uh, and I, I remember... Uh, just this feeling of embarrassment and shame and just being very self-conscious and, and I, don't, I didn't understand what was going on. And I remember, I remember resolving secretly back then, I would never show off again. I would never show off again, you know. And, um, and it got pretty extreme, you know. I was uh, in high school, for example. I remember there were times I would take tests and we would have these policies where, uh, you know, it would last a whole class, and so if you would finish your test, you would walk up to the front, and you'd put the test face down, and you could be dismissed early. Maybe you've done stuff like that before. And I remember I would finish the test, and I would be like 20 minutes early, and I would look around, and, I, and everyone was still working on the test, and I didn't want to show up. I didn't want for people to think I was the first to finish, even though I could have been dismissed early, right? And so I would just pretend to work on my test, even though I had nothing to do. I would just pretend to work on my test until like three or four people went up, and they put their test down, and then I would go up, just because I, I was so self, self-conscious about this idea of showing off. Um, I didn't want people to think that I was a show-off, you know. Um, and I think what was, when I was younger, I had this simplistic understanding of what was going on. Uh, you know, in Christian circles, we talked about, I grew up in the church, we talked about this concept of pride. And pride, simply put, is to obsess, obsess over yourself, right, to think highly of yourself, to uh, think, yourself, think of yourself as better than other people, and and I viewed showing off as sort of this manifestation of pride. And so uh, when I decided I wanted to stop showing off, I think what I decided in my heart was I didn't want to have pride anymore. I didn't want, for, I didn't want to view myself as better than other people. And so I'm just going to not display 
these things, these traits, and I'm just going to be, I want to try to be a laid-back person. I'm going to try to be a chill person. I remember resolving to be that sort of person. And, uh, but in actuality, I think what happened was, when I look back at it now, and I look at my life now, I think a more accurate way to put it is, my pride always was there. My whole life, I've had pride, but the pride matured and adapted and evolved so that it now looks different than it did when I was a kid. Uh, now, as, as a kid, in a very simplistic mind, the way for pride to manifest itself is to show off. But now, as an adult, I recognize showing off doesn't actually get me very far in social circles, especially if I'm going to pursue a career in ministry and things like that. And I realize my, my, my pride is going to start manifesting itself in other ways. And, uh, and so, for example... Uh, another form of pride, besides showing off, is to obsess over your reputation. To obsess over your reputation. Or, in other words, it is to intentionally, publicly portray yourself so that people like you. And that is the version of pride that I struggle with a, a lot, even to this day. And it's very subtly, it's different from showing off, because showing off is uh, very outward, right? You're doing things intentionally to get people's attention, but... Caring about your reputation is sometimes a lot more subtle. It's a lot more discreet. Uh, but basically what I do is I, I, I do this quick mental assessment of uh, whenever I meet people, of uh, what I think people value, what I think people care about, uh, what kind of person they want me to be. And I, I quickly assess this, and I adapt myself to try to be that person so that they think of me highly. That's a little mind game I do to myself all the time. And maybe you relate. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe I'm just talking very fundamental. This is just how human beings work to you. Or maybe this is revolutionary to you. I don't know. Uh, but this is what I do. And, and I, I think that the end goal is still the same as showing off. It looks kind of different, but the end goal is still the same. You want people to think highly of you because you are obsessed with yourself. The strategy may look different. Uh, the strategy, like you're not actually doing things so that people will see you do things. You're not like trying to juggle, if, you know, so that people think you're a great juggler or trying to, you know, dunk the ball in the hoop. If you're, you know, whatever, you're not doing these things outwardly, but you are portraying yourself in a likable manner to other people because you're very concerned with the idea of people thinking highly of you, you know, and... Um, for me, I tried my hardest to publicly portray myself as someone who did not show off. You know, I tried very hard to portray myself as someone who was laid back, as someone who uh, was likable and friendly. And the core mentality behind it was I was obsessed with my image and with my reputation. I didn't want for incidences where people would call me out for showing off. And that would be embarrassed in front of the class, right? I wanted for people to view me as, oh, this is someone who does the right thing. This is someone who is... Uh, He's witty, and he's smart, and he's uh, well-rounded, and that's what I wanted people to say about me, right? And so my core issue of pride was still there, but it just matured and adapted. Many Christian theologians throughout history, they, uh, when they talk about pride, they consider it to be the original and the most deadly, the most serious of all sins. Um, they've said that all sins ultimately stem from pride, or to put it in regular people's terms, T.S. Eliot, the poet, he once said, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. And um, I think that's true. I think that's so true. A lot of the difficulties in life 
is we think too highly of ourselves. We are too self-absorbed. We are too self-obsessed. And we think that we are better than the next person over. And that's what causes a lot of the issues in our world. And the thing with pride, though, is that it is so subtle. It's so subtle. Just like me as a kid, you know, my pride adapted. I thought that I was no longer prideful, but it just adapted. It's so subtle. You know, it's so embedded in our subconscious that oftentimes we don't realize it. Uh, We don't even know how to identify sometimes because it just sort of colors our whole life, right? So how do we get rid of pride? How do we root it out? That's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, My sermon today is titled, How to Root Out Pride. And it's based in this last section of Galatians. Uh, We're wrapping up the sermon series in Galatians. If you haven't been following, you can follow us online. They're all recorded. Uh, But today is the last sermon. We're wrapping up this book. And in some ways, this sermon serves as a foundation for the whole book. So if you missed all of them, it's okay, because we're going to talk about the foundation underlying all of Galatians. I'm going to reread a few verses, starting from Galatians 6.11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And so, this is kind of funny. I've always found this at first kind of funny. So, Paul, uh, a lot of his letters, most of his letters, what he did was he would ask scribes to write them. So he would dictate what to write, and then people would write them. But here, he's He's, he's actually writing with his own hand. So he's telling people, hey, you know, like, scoot over, scribe. You know, I'm going to write this with my own hand now, and I'm going to write with big letters because this is really important. And it's sort of like our way of, um, you know, bolding something. We use, you have a bold font, or you, have a, you just increase the font size, or maybe you highlight it. This is our way of saying, okay, here's my portion of the essay or the letter or the document that is especially important, so important that I want to write this with my own hand, okay? This is important stuff, verse 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul, he's talking about circumcision again. And uh, this is a continual theme throughout the whole book. He's constantly talking about these folks. He calls them the circumcision party. They're trying to enforce circumcision, trying to force circumcision upon people. And the reason why is because there are these Gentiles joining the church. And the Jews uh, in the church, some of them at least, they believe that in order to join the church, you also needed to adopt these Jewish customs. So you needed to be circumcised. And, uh, and, but, what, but what is this stuff that he's talking about, about making a good showing in the flesh and not being persecuted. I want to explore that a little bit. So in Paul's day, uh, what was going on was uh, the Jewish religion in many parts of the Roman Empire was sort of seen as the, the status quo, the, the, the default religion for Jews. And Jews were very concerned about their place in the Roman Empire, and, um, and they, didn't want to, uh, they didn't want the Roman Empire to think of them as weirdos. And so they would be very strict about making sure their Jewish religion was you know, cookie cutter and not crossing any boundaries that shouldn't be crossing, okay? So there was a lot of pressure around that. And so when Christianity came upon the scene, in the beginning, it was only Jews who became Christians. And uh, when these Jews became Christians, uh, from the large, from, from the, uh, public persona, the public perspective, it was believed that Christianity was just a subset of Judaism. It was just sort of this, uh, it was part of Judaism. It was, you know, you have different kinds of Judaism and Christianity was just one of those kinds. And that was all fine and dandy. But then what started happening, was, which was kind of weird, was that Gentiles, non-Jews, started to join the church. And when the Gentiles started to join the church, 
then all of a sudden these Jews start to get concerned because they're like, oh, these people are joining the church. They're going to mess up our reputation, right? They're going to, be, they're going to mess up our reputation because they're polluting this thing that is attached to Judaism. And so they became very concerned about, okay, what these Gentiles are doing, what these Gentiles are not doing. And so some Jews, they actually started to persecute the church, persecute Christians, because they believe that, okay, this is no longer a subset of Judaism. This is a cult. This is something that's off the rails. You believe in, you're like, you know, eating flesh and blood, you're eating communion. But they just didn't understand it, right? They're doing all these weird customs and, and uh, they were freaking out. And so they started persecuting the church and they started, you know, people like Paul at one point in time, he was actually arresting Christians and killing Christians. And the reason why is because the, the Jews were very concerned about this Christian offshoot of Judaism. And, uh, um, so, and, and, and so some Jews who became Christians, in order to protect themselves from being persecuted by the Jews, what they would do is they would try to convince the Gentiles who are becoming Christians, let's just play along. Let's try to adopt these Jewish customs, these Jewish traditions, you know, I know you don't have to be circumcised, but just get circumcised. Just do it anyways, because we don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know what? Let's just keep pretending like we're part of the Jewish religion. And so that was sort of the argument that's going on. And sometimes uh, they would sort of report back to these Jews and they would say, hey, you know what? You don't, I don't think you should be persecuting us. You should be killing us. You know, we're on the same team. Like, look at these Gentiles, you know. They're getting circumcised just like we are. They're adopting these customs just like we are. We're all on the same team. And it's sort of like this, so this line about boasting in the flesh of the, uh, sorry, uh, giving the Jews a good showing in the flesh or boasting in the flesh, I think this is like literally they're talking about the circumcision of the flesh. They're saying like, look at how many converts we have to circumcision. Look at how many converts we have to Judaism. Like these people, they're Gentiles, right? They're becoming Christians, but they're actually part of us too. And... um, and so there's sort of this uh, mentality of, you know, like, they're trying to communicate, we're not this weird cult. We're not this weird offshoot that's doing crazy things. Like, we're on the same team. Um, and as they were doing this, they were hoping that these Jewish leaders wouldn't be giving the Christian church such a hard time that they would stop persecuting the church. So that was sort of the context. So to break it down, okay, these Jewish Christians, they were enforcing circumcision because they wanted a good reputation among the Jews. They wanted to protect their own skin, pun intended, okay? And in other words, you can think about it this way, it was pride. It was pride. They were not as concerned about the gospel as they were about their own reputations. They were obsessing over themselves. You know, we may look at the circumcision party with judgment, but I think we can all think of similar scenarios, right? Where you are part of a culture, you're part of a group, and you don't want to display yourself negatively to another group and so you change things a little bit, right? You modify things a little bit. You adapt a little bit. You compromise a little bit so that you would be looked in a higher light by other people. Um, I think we all at times are obsessed with our image. We are all at times inclined to be self-absorbed or self-pitying or self-justifying. And the reason was we all have pride, right? We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. Uh, we want to be admired. And regardless of how it manifests, we all have pride. We all put ourselves on the throne of our lives sometimes. Um, ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve they first ate the fruit, uh, the reason why they did was that they could exalt themselves to be like God so they can determine right and wrong for themselves. And at the core, that was pride. And that, that uh, tendency 
to look good in front of other people, to be better, to view ourselves as better than we actually are, uh, that has trickled down today, and we've all followed in their footsteps. Well, let's take a look at what Paul says about himself. This is verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the, he was saying, These people are boasting in your flesh. He says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so Paul's saying, you are all boasting in the number of uh, Jewish converts, circumcision converts you have. I'm boasting in nothing except for the cross of Christ. Um, and he says that's all that matters because, because of the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, I'm not concerned about what other people think about me anymore. I don't care about what other people think about me anymore. I, I'm, not, I'm not engaged with the drama, the politics of the world uh, my concern is not to be obsessed with what other people think of me, but my concern is to be obsessed with Christ. You see, the only way you stop being so obsessed with yourself is to find someone even greater than yourself. That's the only way you can stop being obsessed with yourself. The only way to root out pride, this tendency to care about your image, this tendency to care about your reputation, the tendency to think of yourself as great is to find someone else who is even greater. Maybe you've experienced this before, this dynamic. Let's say you're obsessed with a certain game, okay, a video game, a phone game, fill in the blank, and you're just playing it all the time, okay? That's all you ever do. But maybe you experienced this. One day you come across a new game that's even better. And, and you might not even have imagined in the beginning when you first started this first game that any game could be better. But you start playing this new game, and all of a sudden you are freed from the addiction of playing the first game, Right? And it's maybe not just game. Let's say you're obsessed with a certain celebrity. Let's say you're obsessed with a certain uh, athlete. Let's say Joe Flacco, okay? And then uh, one day you discover that someone else comes along, and all of a sudden this person you thought was the most amazing quarterback in the world who was the MVP candidate, maybe he, all of a sudden he's not as great as you thought he was, right? It's the very same concept. You know, we all do the same thing. We are, the or, in order to, be, to loosen your obsession over something is to find something else that is worth obsessing over even more. And uh, I think pride at its nature is this idea of obsessing over ourselves. And the way to stop do that, doing that is to find someone else worth obsessing even more. And for, Jesus, and for Paul, that's Jesus. You see, we all, um, human wiring is uh, we all want to worship. It's sort of in our DNA. It's in our heart to want to worship, to try to find something that's amazing and to praise it, to exalt it, to relish it. That's what, that's what we do. And by default, we worship ourselves, right? Because we look around in the world and we go, man, this world's messed up. That person's messed up. That person's messed up. That politician's messed up. That company is messed up. This restaurant's messed up. We, we look around and we say, everyone's messed up. Nobody is worthy of our worship, so we worship ourselves. That's sort of the default mentality. But inevitably, as pride plays out, um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we realize we're not, worship, we're not worthy of our worship either because we're messed up too. We mess up also. We fail also. We let people down also. We let ourselves down also. And over time, you know, we realize, you know, we're just doing the same thing as everyone else. We're just faking it till we make it. And uh, I would be the biggest hypocrite in the world to worship myself too. 
So what else can we do? I love this verse. This is from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. It says, Thus is the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You know what's boasting about? What's worth boasting about? It's not our wisdom, not our might, not our riches. None of these are worthy of our worship ultimately. The only one who is worthy of worship is God. God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And maybe if you're not from a Christian background, it might sound weird uh, to worship somebody um, that strikes you as odd. And we live in this society where, you know, we really value democracy. We really value equality. And this, this idea of exalting a specific individual might sound odd to you. Um, so I'm just going to lay it out to you. Here's the case. Why is God worthy of worship? Why do we worship him? There are many reasons, but if you look at the narrative of Scripture, there are two. Why do we worship God? Why is he worthy of our worship? I'm going to read two passages. The first one is Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So why is God worthy of our worship? Reason number one, he created us. It's that straightforward. He created us. Okay, number two, why else are we worthy? Why else are we worshiping God? Revelations 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So number two, why is God worthy of our worship? Reason number two, because he saved us. So reason number one, because he created us. And reason number two, he created us. Let's, uh, he saved us. Let's talk about that a little bit. I don't know about you. I'm not a good creator. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about universes. Okay, I'm just talking about in my life. I'm not a good creator. For example, uh, sometimes I try to create meals for my family, and it, it's okay, all right? Sometimes I try to create schedules to follow. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes I try to create friendships to commit to, and I let people down. I try to do these things, okay? I try to create things, and sometimes I do okay, and a lot of times I don't. And the reason why is because I'm not a good creator. If I'm honest with myself and I look at my, my resume of creation in my life, I realize I'm not that good. But then I look at God, I look at how he created comets and redwood trees and the human eye, and I mean, I would say, objectively, he's a great creator. He, he does these things that are far beyond what I can do. And I think because of that, he is worthy of our praise and our worship. You know, when we, uh, nobody watches, like a, let's say you're watching a beautiful sunrise, and uh, no one watches a beautiful sunrise and go, wow, I'm so amazing. We don't do that, right? When you, when you watch a beautiful sunrise, you go, I am, I am nothing but a speck in the universe, Right? And the reason why is because we are so awed by the creative energy of the universe that our efforts of doing anything at all just pale in comparison. And, and so I think that watching the sunrise, something we should you know, regularly do, or, or it doesn't have to be watching the sunrise if you're not a morning person, but I think engaging it with God's creation and recognizing the amazing things God has done to create and, and, and to fabricate all of this that we live in 
um, it should blow our minds, and it should cause us to, to praise him, to worship him. Okay, that's number one. Number two, God is worthy of our worship because he saved us. And I think this is key because Paul didn't just say, I boast in God. He says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. Because what personally impacted Paul, I think, even more than the fact that God is a creator, is the fact that God chose to become a man to save him. That is mind-blowing. That the creator God chose to become a man to save him. And as recently, uh, recently, as many of you know, Kobe Bryant passed away. Uh, he, he was a basketball player for the Lakers. And uh, in the aftermath of him passing away, there were uh, a lot of stories online about, you know, what he did on the court and off the court. And, and, there were, and I got to read a few of them. And one thing that was really um, uh, heartwarming for me was uh, I read about the story about a woman named Kristen. And Kristen, this was several years ago, she worked at a hospital in Phoenix. And at this hospital, there was a boy five years old, and his name was Kobe, too. He was named after Kobe Bryant, and he was, uh, you know, he had, he, he spent five years of his life, uh, you know, being the biggest Kobe Bryant fan in the world. But he was in the hospital because he had a heart defect, and he was going to die soon. And, um, and this woman, Kristen, she happened to be married to a man who worked for the Phoenix Suns, and they were living in Phoenix. And it just so happened that the Lakers were going to come into town soon to play the Phoenix Suns. And so she, she asked her husband, hey, do you think it's possible to pull a few strings to maybe get like an autographed ball or something from Kobe Bryant and give it to this kid? I think it would make his day. And so he asked around, and he said yes. Uh, and two days later, Kobe Bryant actually showed up at the hospital and, uh, and, and hung out with the kid for a whole hour. They, you know, they passed the ball around to, with one another, and they hung out. They talked about basketball. They, you know, he signed a bunch of things, and they took photos together. And then he left, and then a week later, the kid died, passed away. Um, about three weeks after that, little Kobe, five-year-old Kobe's mom, uh, sent a letter to Kristen and just shared about how that was the best day of Kobe's life. Um, she said that was the most joyful time that he ever had. And those photos that she had of little Kobe and big Kobe, they were the only photos she had of him smiling. You know, little Kobe, he was always a huge fan of Kobe, of Kobe Bryant. But when the Kobe Bryant showed up at the hospital, I think little Kobe, his, fam, his fandom level just hit a, a new level, right? Because it's one thing, it's one thing to know about Kobe Bryant, to be a fan of Kobe Bryant. But it's another thing to know that Kobe Bryant knows you and that he's a fan of you and he cares about you. That adds a totally another dimension to this relationship. And I would say the same thing. It's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to know about his character, to know about his values. But it's a whole other thing to know that God knows you. That God cares about you. That God wants to be in a relationship with you. And the cross of Jesus, the reason why Paul brings it up here, is because the cross of Jesus demonstrates like nothing else that God wants to know you. He wants to know you so much that he chose to become a man to suffer and die to be in relationship with you. That's what the cross represents. Jesus, also, Jesus didn't just live with us, talk with us, hang out with us. He did something that Kobe Bryant couldn't ever do, which is that he gave his life to save us. 
And that roots out pride like nothing else. What is it that roots out pride? Knowing that God died for you. You know, we spend a lot of our time making much of ourselves. Um, We admire ourselves. We exalt ourselves. We're absorbed with ourselves. But when we look at God, he's the only one who had every right to admire himself. He had every right to be absorbed with himself. He had every right to make much of himself. And he chose to empty himself, to become a man, a human being, to be, as the scriptures say, to be like a slave, humbling himself even to the point of death, to give his life for us, then that shatters our pride. What right do we have to hold on to our pride, to make much of ourselves, when we see God going to such radical extremes to lay down his life for us? How could we possibly choose the path of pride when God chose the path of humility for our sake? The cross of Christ roots out the need to seek the approval of others. As Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because he gets it that once you are in the gospel, once you believe this radical message of God dying for you, why would you even care about what other people think of you? You have this God who thinks of you. God approves of you. The cross of Christ roots out this need to be self-centered, to live out self-centered lives, to only be concerned about ourselves. We can say, along with Paul in Galatians 2.20, as he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I don't need to worry about loving myself. I don't need to worry about other people loving me because I know that the Son of God loves me. He gave his life for me. And now I don't have to live for myself. I don't have to live for other people. I can live for God alone. The cross of Christ roots out this need to compare ourselves constantly with others, to measure who's better, who's worse, who's more accomplished, who's less accomplished. We can say, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? It makes us say, these differences, these boundaries, these barriers that I'm constantly drawing to make myself feel better or to put other people down, to judge other people, to criticize people, to, to risk myself being a hypocrite because I can never meet even my own standards, all of this stuff, we don't need it at all because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus has leveled the playing field. The cross of Christ roots out this need to be enslaved to legalism. It makes us want to say, as Paul says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Pride is one of the most enslaving things. It makes us want to be someone we can never be. It makes us compare ourselves to other people, even though we can never match even our own standards. We can never be better than anybody else. It's this losing game. But for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand there, stand firm, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the cross of Christ roots out this need to proudly boast in ourselves, makes us want to say, as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When you realize that God died for you, then nothing else matters. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, 
but a new creation. Neither getting into med school or not getting into med school counts for anything. Neither getting married or not getting married counts for anything. Neither getting my boss to like me nor not getting my boss to like me counts for anything. Neither being a great parent or not being a great parent counts for anything. All these things, of course, they are important in their own little worlds, in their own scheme of things. But when you compare that to this great narrative, this grand narrative of we did nothing, but God saved us by loving us and dying for us, then it doesn't count for anything. What matters is this new creation, this new value system, this new way of doing things where you're not on the throne of your life, but Jesus is a new king on your life on the throne of your life. In this new creation, everything changes. Your desires are different. Your priorities are different. Your emphases are different. Your allegiances are different. And you recognize that pride has no monetary value in this new economy. We need pride in this old economy, in this old creation way of doing things. That's That's how we survive. That's how we excel. That's how we make do. But in this new kingdom, in this new creation, Pride is worthless. We don't need it anymore. We're moving into a time of uh, communion soon, and communion is when we remember that Jesus died so that we could have life. When you're ready, you can line up on either aisle, come to the table, take the bread. It represents Jesus' body broken for you. You can dip in the cup, representing Jesus' blood shed for you, and eat it right there. Communion, in a sense, is a, a symbolic way of boasting in the cross is to say, I'm boasting not in myself, not in my accomplishments, not in my efforts, but I'm boasting in the fact that I did nothing. I was a sinner through and through. I was weak, but at the right time, Jesus died for me, and he saved me. And when you do that, you're also declaring to the world. Your value system is different. You're not of the old creation anymore. You're part of the new creation. Maybe some of you, you're here today and you've been sitting on the throne of your heart for as long as you remember. That's all you've known. And uh, you've been the main character of your life. You've been the main, your problems and your desires. And it's been the main plot line of your life. And uh, if that's you, I want to invite you to the cross. Lay down yourself. Lay down your past. Lay down your desires, lay down your needs, lay down your need to be absorbed with yourself, to be obsessed with yourself, to lord your opinions over other people, your judgments over other people, and say, you know what? I can't do it. I want to come to Jesus. Because Jesus loves you even more than you love yourself. He cares about you even more than you care about yourself. He's willing to fight for you even more than you can fight for yourself. I encourage you to pray to him invite him into your life today. Maybe some of you, you're here today, you've already invited God into your life, maybe many times before. Uh, But the fact of the matter is you you still struggle tremendously with pride. And I'm with you right there too. I struggle tremendously with pride. You know, sometimes I'm still addicted to myself. I still boast in my flesh. I still fear the persecution of the world. I value what people think of me. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray along with me. Ask God to open your eyes. 
The way to stop being obsessed with yourself is to be obsessed with Christ. So allow his beauty to outshine your beauty. Allow his glory to outshine your glory. Allow his love to outshine your love for yourself. Pray that the gospel would capture you once more, captivate your mind so that you would turn your eyes away from yourself and turn to Jesus, the only one worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, I want to confess, and maybe folks here want to confess with me, that we have spent too much time on ourselves. We are too possessive of our time. We're too controlling of our hearts. From the day we have, were born, God, we've set ourselves up on the throne of our lives. We pretend to be kings and queens. We're just like... Uh, I think of the book where the wild things are, Little Max, trying to be king, controlling all these monsters in the forest. But we're, we can't. We fail. We can't even meet our own standards. We can't even fight our own fights. May you open our eyes to see the great love you have for us, the great love you've lavished on us, that you've demonstrated through the cross, through Jesus becoming a man, hungry, broken, in pain, suffering, dead on the cross. May you help us see that that changes everything. We don't have to be the same. We don't have to wallow in our shame and embarrassment and guilt and fear and isolation and futility. We can come to the cross. We can join this new creation family of God where we have this new economy, this new way of doing things. May the reality of this new creation rattle our bones, sink into our hearts, and root out pride. May you have all the worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.